the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. This is your hour when Orlando Magic Senior Vice President Pat Williams sits down and speaks with authors who have written books on topics of interest and insight for listeners like you. And now, here's your host, Pat Williams. Welcome again, folks, to the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. You're plugged in here to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word, in Orlando. And that's a good place to be plugged into, by the way. Uh, we've got an interesting guest here, but first I want to introduce our engineer, Pistol Pete Paquette. Oh, he's good. He's good. And Andrew Herdliska does all the producing. And I want to introduce you to Robert J. Morgan, teaching pastor at the Donaldson Fellowship in Nashville. His new book is out, and boy, it's a, it's something. It's a dandy. The 50 Final Events in World History, the Bible's Last Words on Earth's Final Days. Robert, welcome to Orlando. How are you? Oh, I'm fine. Thank you, Pat. So good to be with you. What brought this book about? Why did you want to write it? I have been studying the book of Revelation for nearly half a century. I've taught through it, I've preached through it, and I've come to believe that most people and most churches, most Christians, do not have a very good understanding, in fact, are intimidated by the book of Revelation. And that's just a shame, because all of the other 65 books of the Bible lead to Revelation, and all 22 chapters of Revelation lead to heaven, and it's information that God wanted us to have to understand the last days and the things that are going to precede the coming of Christ, and it's not as difficult as people think. And so I wanted to explain the book of Revelation simple enough so that a middle schooler could understand it. I think God has given us this book to prepare us for the future and to fill us with hope towards the return of Christ. So, Robert, uh, you walk us step-by-step through the end of the world to the dawn of the new kingdom of heaven. Am I correct in saying that? Yes. And, and, and what do we take from that? How, how, why? Okay, let me, let me go back. We're intimidated. We're frightened by revelation. We don't understand it. So how can you make it simple? The book of Revelation opens with chapter 1, and it's an introduction. And in that introduction, we have a vision that John, the writer, sees of Christ as he is right now on his throne. The last time we see Jesus in the Gospels, he is resurrected and ascending to heaven. But in chapter 1 of Revelation, we see him sitting on his throne in majesty. And chapters 2 and 3 are simple messages to us Christians about the way that we should live. And then in chapter 4, Through chapter 18, we have a step-by-step study of what's going to happen during the seven years of tribulation, 
And then in chapter 19, Jesus comes again. In chapter 20, he sets up his kingdom. And in the last two chapters of the Bible, we have the most wonderful description of heaven that there is in all of Scripture. And so if you take the things sequentially, Pat, and just see them unfold one after the other, then you know that all of this is leading towards the return of Christ and his supreme victory over evil. What we are seeing in the world right now cannot go on forever. And we're living at a time in which, and this is, I think, true for the first time in history, in which if someone punched the wrong button or broke the wrong test tube, the whole human race could be annihilated. And we need to know that Jesus is coming, that things are going to end well, that he's in control, that evil is going to be dealt with. And so the book of Revelation takes us step by step through the process by which the world will prepare for the Lord's coming again. And it's exciting. It's wonderful. It's the 50 final events in world history. Robert Morgan, our guest, he's in Nashville. The book, it's a, it's a must-read, the 50 final events in world history. I, I do want to ask you about a verse. In fact, Robert, it was the key verse in me coming to Christ, Revelation 3.20. Uh, can you talk about that verse for a minute? I absolutely can. This was spoken to the Church of Laodicea in chapters 2 and 3 of, um, uh, of Revelation. The Lord is sending this book of Revelation to seven churches originally that were connected with John the author, John the apostle who wrote it. One of those churches was Laodicea, and the Laodicean church was not in very good shape at the time. And Jesus said, it's like you've pushed me out of the church, and I'm standing here at the door knocking. If anyone will hear my voice and open the door, I will come in. So that was spoken originally to a dead church, but it's the great invitation that also is true for all of us. The Lord is outside of so many lives. He isn't inside. He's not in our heart. He's not reigning in our mind. He's not in control of our lives. He is outside, and we are isolated on the inside, and all we have to do is open the door and let him come in and we'll have fellowship with him and him with us. And it's a wonderful verse, Pat, for someone to to discover upon the moment of their finding Christ and meeting him as Savior, you open the door of your life, and there he is waiting to come in. With what's going on in Russia, Ukraine, is that somehow tied to the book of Revelation? Well, it is in maybe two ways. First of all, it may be a prelude to what is coming in the future, because when you see what Putin is doing, he may not be the Antichrist, but it gives us a preview of what the Antichrist will be like, the way this man, Putin, is decimating cities and killing people and torturing men and women and little girls and laying waste the land. That is anti-Christian. That is anti-biblical, it is anti-godly, it is anti-Christ. And so it gives us a preview. Uh, If he isn't the Antichrist, it gives us a preview of of what the Antichrist will be like. The other way is that we're told in Ezekiel 38 and 39 that when Israel is invaded at the Battle of Armageddon, many of those armies will come from the north. 
And if you look at a map, just north of Israel is Turkey and Ukraine and Russia. And so you wonder if maybe the pieces are being aligned for that time when things will emerge with the Battle of Armageddon that will precede the coming of Christ. So I'm not making any specific connections, but, Pat, I'm watching it very carefully. Robert, tell me more about Armageddon. The Battle of Armageddon is a a three-and-a-half-year war that will be waged against Israel the way that Hitler wanted to destroy all of the Jews. So the Antichrist is going to want to destroy the state of Israel to prevent Jesus from coming again. And this is referred to in the book of Revelation, but it especially is described for us in vivid detail in certain passages of Isaiah, and Zechariah, chapters 12, 13, and 14, and the book of Ezekiel, chapters 38 and 39 in the Old Testament. So there is no doubt that all of the battles uh, in history are leading up to this Third World War, or it may end up being the Fourth World War, but this great campaign that will be the last global conflict in world history, and then Jesus will come again, and he will end the Battle of Armageddon instantly, and it says in Second Thessalonians 2 that he will destroy this Antichrist by the splendor of his coming and by a word from his mouth. So this is the battle towards which all of human history is merging. How far away, Pat? I don't know. Is it next week, or is it seven years from now, or is it 50 or 100 years from now? I don't know. But I think when we see what Jesus called wars and rumors of wars, all of these things are moving in that direction. I want you to tell us more about heaven, Robert. I uh, I think of those early verses in John 14, uh, I go to prepare a place for you. Uh, And if I go to prepare a place, I'll receive you unto myself so that where I am there, you may be also. Uh, How does that verse from Jesus tie into what we know about heaven? Well, that verse from Jesus is amplified in Revelation chapters 22 and, uh, 21 and 22. Uh, what Jesus said in John 14, I go to prepare a place for you, the many mansions, my Father's house, is fully described in the last two chapters of the Bible. Mm. And, Pat, I take this so literally. My wife is in heaven now. She passed away a year and a half ago. And the last thing that I said to her, uh, as she was passing away, is mm. uh, in the morning, we'll take a walk hand-in-hand hand by the Crystal River. And I really believe that there's going to be a new heavens and a new earth. There's going to be a great city, New Jerusalem, that exists right now in the unseen realm above us. That's where my wife Katrina is. And at the end of time, God's going to recreate everything. And Revelation 21 says this city is going to come down to the new earth, and we will live in the new city and the new earth and the new heavens forever. And in the middle of the city is the throne of God, and beneath the throne is gushing the crystal river that runs through the city. And it's described like a travel guide, Pat. And the last two chapters of the Bible, this is why the Revelation, the book of Revelation, is so hopeful. There are some places there that really describe the plagues uh, with which God will judge evil, but it's all moving towards the eternal home that God is preparing for us 
which Jesus spoke about in John chapter 14, but when we what we read about in detail, vivid detail, wonderful detail in Revelation 21 and 22. I, uh, many, many years ago, Robert, I was sitting under a lecture by, uh, by Dwight Pentecost. Uh, the, oh, yes. Uh, and, and, and he said, I don't know everything about heaven, but uh, you better be a fruit eater. Uh, if you want to get along up there, that's the Dwight Pentecost. He said, "You better like fruit." Uh, tell what do you think he meant by that? Well, the food is going to be marvelous. Uh, you know, after Jesus rose from the dead, he ate supper with his disciples. He had breakfast ready for them. He actually ate fish and bread and other things. Uh, now, in heaven, uh, we don't expect there'll be any death, so. I'm not sure if it will be carnivores, but I don't think we'll mind um, the fact that Jesus, in his resurrection body, ate and drank and enjoyed food and beverage and fellowship means that we'll have that same capacity because our bodies are going to be like his, according to Philippians chapter 3. So I think the food, whatever it is, uh, if there's not meat, there'll be something better. Uh, There'll be lots of fruits and vegetables and uh, maybe manna the food of angels that they ate in the uh, Old Testament. Um, (laughs) You know, the menu is going to surpass anything at any restaurant anywhere in the world. So this is the reality of it. We're not going to be floating around with wings and bored all the time. It says his servants will serve him. There's going to be a lot of uh, opportunity for meaningful uh, service and activity and goals and things that we'll enjoy doing, it's going to be like this world, but without the sin, without the stress, without the curse, without the death, without the decay, it's going to be wonderful and forever, and that's the way it should be. The Bible says in the book of Ecclesiastes that we have eternity in our hearts. God has made us for this, and I describe all of this just as well as I can in the 50 final events in world history, because It is the consummating message of the Bible. Robert J. Morgan is our uh, guest today. And that's the name of the book, The 50 Final Events in World History. It's a must read, uh, The Bible's Last Words on Earth's Final Days. Uh, Some years ago, Robert, I had a friend who wrote a book. It was entitled, The One Thing You Can't Do in Heaven. And uh, the one the one thing you can't do in heaven, and and you know what it you know what the whole theme was the one thing you can't do in heaven. Uh, I, I could guess, but tell me, yeah. You you you, uh, you can't share your faith with anybody. Uh, you can't lead anybody to Christ. Um, and he the gist of the book was you better be sharing your faith now because once you get to heaven, you can't do it anymore. I'll let you ponder on that while we uh, take a break here. Uh, Robert Morgan is our guest of 50 Final Events in World History. I, I want to remind you that my latest book is out. It's called uh, Every Day is Game Day. And it's a 365-day uh, devotional. Uh, every uh, day, it's, it's a sports story, a sports theme, that then leads into the devotional part. I, I think you'll get some some value from it. So, when you're up on Amazon ordering the final 50, the 50 final events in world history, uh, get a copy of Every Day is Game Day. 
Well, I'm Pat Williams, and this is the Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Uh, Back with Robert J. Morgan right after these messages. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, the word. Now, here's Pat. Robert J. Morgan is in Nashville. Uh, He's uh, talking about his new book, The 50 Final Events in World History. Uh, Robert, tell me about John. Are you, are you a big John fan? The book of John and first John, second John, third John, Revelation. Tell me more about this man. Yes, I certainly am. I think John was brilliant. He was absolutely brilliant. Now, we think of these 12 disciples up in Galilee. Uh, they were fishermen. Uh, it says they were ignorant and unlearned men in the book of Acts. But that doesn't mean that they didn't have a very high IQ. And we are told in the Gospels that John knew the high priest of Israel, that when Jesus was arrested, that John was able to go with him into the residence of the high priest because he knew the high priest. Well, I believe that's because John was the representative for the fishing business in Galilee. We know from archaeology that Galilean fish were very desirable all across the Middle East and all throughout Israel. And I think John was uh, a sales rep who would go all over Israel uh, on behalf of his family's fishing concern. And he must have had a magnetic personality. Uh, You know, the salesman, of course, uh, as you well know, this particular kind of wonderful personality and appealing uh, approach to people is very valuable. And I think that John was like that. Um, And then he became a follower of Christ. He took all of these gifts with him. He learned. He, he became uh, a great theologian, a great preacher, and near the, you know, in the last portion of his life, he survived all of the other apostles, and he lived in Ephesus, where he oversaw the churches there. And that's where he wrote the Gospel of John, and First and Second and Third John. And then he was exiled in his old age to the island of Patmos, and there God gave him the emperor It's so ironic, Pat. The emperor thought that he was getting rid of John, but instead he was simply putting John where he could receive the last great body of revelation given by God for the Bible. And he came back from Patmos with the book of Revelation. So these books, the five books in the Bible that he wrote, are masterful. They all fit together. You can see his hand in writing them. And he has a very exalted view of Jesus Christ. Robert, what do we know about the island of Patmos? Well, it's a beautiful place. According to Forbes magazine, it's one of the most desirable places to live in the world. The climate is great. There's no airport there. You have to come and go by boat. Uh, it's um, A lot of wealthy people now have homes there. John wasn't sent to Patmos because it was a desert island somewhere where he would suffer. They just wanted to get him out of Ephesus, and mm. Patmos is only a few miles uh, out of Ephesus, but it's, uh, it's over the water, so John was stranded there. And, uh, and so the Lord was so good to give John a beautiful place. Uh, John was frustrated because he wanted to be with his, with his people and continue his ministry, but that island, I haven't visited it. It's on my bucket list to see. Uh, maybe you've been there, but it's uh, 
it's said to be a beautiful place, and it was there on that island on the Lord's Day that John began receiving these revelations that make up this final book of the Bible. So what do you think, Robert, those revelations were like? Was it an audible voice? And was John, how was John writing? Did he have a big pen? Did he have a ballpoint pen? Uh, I've always been curious about that. Well, I I know, and I am too. It seems that he saw all of this vividly, Mm -hmm. uh, that it it was either a vision or he was taken up to heaven where he actually saw things. And how he recorded them, uh, and whether he recorded them on the spot immediately, or God just brought it all to his memory when he could sit down at the desk and write it out, I don't know. But uh, we know that every word of God, every word of the Bible is inspired, and the Lord enabled these writers to write down things that were true. Um, So whether John wrote it down with some kind of quill and pen and parchment at the very moment as he saw all of this, I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, I can see him sitting at some uh, table in Patmos, and and all of this is, these visions are coming to him, and he's just writing, writing it all down. But it could be the Lord sort of transported into heaven. We get that indication in chapter 4, and he saw all of this, and when he returned, the Lord guided him in writing it down at that point, one one or the other, but um, it's vivid to think about. It's interesting to think about. There's a little bit of mystery to it, but what he wrote down had just leaves our hearts leaping with hope. Everybody should have a grasp of the book of Revelation because it prepares us for the future and it fills us with hope. Robert Morgan, the author of The 50 Final Events in World History. Robert, I've got a lot of friends that are already in heaven. I miss them. Uh, do you think when I get there, um, I'm going to recognize these people? Uh, will I be able to hang out with them? Oh yes, I have a whole appendix in the book of the fifty-five, uh, in the back of the fifty final events in world history. Will we know one another in heaven? And you know, the disciples recognized Jesus after he was resurrected and glorified. On the Mount of Transfiguration, Peter recognized Elijah and Moses there with Jesus. They all seemed to know one another. And someone said that when we get to heaven, we're not going to be more stupid than we were on earth. If we know one another down here, certainly we'll know one another up there. But I've got a feeling, Pat, that when you meet your great-great-great-great-great-grandfather who served the Lord generations before, Mm, mm. you will instinctively know him. Mm. Now, it may be that he'll have to come up and introduce himself, uh, (laughs) or the Lord Jesus will say, Pat, this was your (laughs) great-great-great-great-grandfather. But somehow I feel like that we're going to have an instinctive recognition of one another, and I just can't wait. I mean, there are nights when, when I go to bed, As I fall asleep, I just see this great diamond city descending down to the new earth, and I think my wife is there. I'm sure I'm going to recognize her instantly, and she me. And so, yes, you will know your loved ones in heaven and the friends that have gone on before, and you'll love them more than you ever have. And there'll never be any misunderstanding or tensions or stress in the relationships, and to me, that's just going to be a great joy. 
will uh, will we be upset when we discover that some of our friends here on Earth didn't make it? I don't think we'll be upset. I don't know quite how that's going to work, Pat. The Bible doesn't really uh, address that a great deal, but I think somehow we're going to recognize that God always does right. Uh, Abraham said, will not the uh, Holy One of Israel always do what is right? And uh, then God is very merciful. Uh, And so when I think of that question, the answer is, I don't know, but I know that whatever God does will be right. I know that whatever he does is merciful, and I've just got to leave that to him. But it does motivate me to try to share my faith with everyone while I can. Like you said, when we get to heaven, it'll be too late to do that. So Mm. we need to share Jesus Christ and the hope that we have in him now whenever we can. Robert, what do you want people to take from your book and from our discussion here? I want them to be able to explain the book of Revelation to a friend over a cup of coffee on a napkin. In fact, I've got an appendix in the back of the book that says the book of Revelation on a napkin. Uh, I want them to be able to explain the book of Revelation to a middle schooler so that they can understand it. The Bible gave this title, Revelation, to this book. It's not called obscurity or confusion or puzzlement. It's called Revelation because the very first verse says, the revelation which God gave to Jesus Christ to show his servants what must soon take place. And Revelation is the only book in the Bible that also includes a blessing for those who read and study it. So I want people to get that blessing and to have the hope within them. I think it will give them a better perspective on the headlines for today and a better grasp on the hope for tomorrow if they can understand the last capstone of the Bible, the book of Revelation. My guest has been Robert J. Morgan. He's the teaching pastor of the Donaldson Fellowship in Nashville. Uh, The book, go get it. It's a must-read. The 50 Final Events in World History, the Bible's Last Words on Earth's Final Days. Well, we've got more here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Stay right with us here on the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. In Orlando, we'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour, AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Now, here's Pat. Well, folks, uh, we had quite a visit with Robert Morgan in that first segment, uh, talking about his book, The 50 Final Events in World History. Wow. Well, here's another wow. Luke Timothy Johnson. He's in Atlanta. He's the Robert W. Woodruff Professor Emeritus of New Testament and Christian Origin at Candler School of Theology, Emory University. But we're going to talk about his book, The Mind in Another Place, My Life as a Scholar. Welcome to Orlando, Luke. How are you? Thank you. Good morning, Pat. So what's the background here? The Mind in Another Place, My Life as a Scholar. What does that mean? I've always tried, I've been an an academic scholar for much of my life. Um, I began my adulthood as a Benedictine monk, and then I became a scholar. And it occurred to me over many years that 
very few people really understand what it is that scholars actually do. Why? And, and so I use this phrase, the mind in another place, because that kind of describes uh, people who are going about ordinary life like everybody else, but all the time their mind is picking away at some kind of problem, some kind of puzzle that they're working on. Scholars aren't the only people who do this, of course. Uh, anybody who has a passion, uh, a poet, a novelist, a downhill skier, but scholars do it in a peculiar way. And I wanted to try to show my family, first of all, and then would-be scholars, and perhaps uh, other people as well, what it is that scholars actually do with their time. Well, let's dive in. First of all, tell us about your childhood, 1943 to 1955. I was born in a world that uh, was still coming out of the Depression uh, in northern Wisconsin. And uh, I was the youngest child of a widow with six children. And um, that whole region was uh, very impoverished. Um, and so I talk about the four characteristics of my family that I think really shaped uh, kind of the kind of person I became um, and then the kind of scholar I became. And the first of these is faith. Uh, my mother was a woman of deep faith, and everything we did revolved around the life of the Church. It was much more important to us than school. Uh, the prayer every day, all day, really. Um, but we were Roman Catholic, and we grew up in the pre-Vatican Council Church. And the second characteristic um, was uh, music. Uh, we listened to and played and sang constantly, and it was a joyous household. And uh, the third characteristic was wit and humor. We I grew up in a family of people who were very smart and very funny, and that wit has always been important to me. And the final characteristic was wide reading. Um, my mother was incredibly trusting of us to read anything we picked up in the house, and the house was full of books and magazines. And so at a very early age, I uh, acquired the hunger for reading uh, widely, voraciously. So those are four of the characters that I carried forward from those first 11 years in Wisconsin. Now, uh, let's move to adolescence, 1955 to 1963. What's going on with you now? Well, it was a huge change because my mother died when I was 11 of brain cancer. My father had died when I was an infant. So um, we were now orphans. And... My, the brother, my brother Pat, who was three years older than me, and I moved to Jackson, Mississippi, where my oldest brother had married a Mississippi girl when he was at Keesler Field uh, in the Air Force. So the transition was from northern Wisconsin, where I had never even seen a person of color in my first 11 years, to the Deep South in the dying throes of Jim Crow and segregation. Uh, the summer we moved to Jackson was the summer that Emmett Till was lynched, 
The summer I left Jackson to go to the monastery at 19 was the summer that Medgar Evers was assassinated. So it was a, a very difficult time and required a lot of cultural adaptation, which is difficult for young boys who are grieving uh, a lost home, a lost family. So a rescue for me was being able to go for the first time to a Catholic school, which gave me a bit of sanity and a bit of structure. And I was very fortunate to have two wonderfully bright female teachers, one of them a Sister of Mercy, who was my football coach as well as my instructor, and um, they saw in me the possibility of becoming um, a priest. So at the age of 13, I left uh, Jackson to go to Covington, Louisiana, to study for the priesthood, as Catholic young men did in those days, began very early. So I went to a school in the piney woods of Covington, Louisiana, across Lake Pontchartrain from New Orleans, and again was immersed in another completely new cultural mix, this time of Italian boys from New Orleans and Cajun boys from the bayous, and was fortunate enough to spend my adolescence in a way of life structured by the Benedictine community that taught the seminary. And so it was a life of deep immersion in worship, uh, in music, and again, the ability to read as widely as I wanted to, and to begin to learn what it meant to become an intellectual, not yet a scholar, but an intellectual, somebody who um, loved reading more than eating. Unfortunately, that didn't necessarily continue, but that's another story. Luke Timothy Johnson. We're talking about his book, The Mind in Another Place, My Life as a Scholar. Uh, let's finish up uh, part one, your monastic life, 1963 to 71, and then your doctoral studies, 71 and 1976. Fill us in on that, and, uh, and then when you're finished, sure. we'll move on to part two. Okay. Well, uh, these were pivotal uh, experiences for me. Uh, when I, entered, uh, when I um, graduated from the seminary, I entered the monastery, the community uh, whose teachers had taught me in the seminary. And I did two years of philosophy at Notre Dame Seminary in New Orleans. And then my abbot sent me to St. Meinrad School of Theology, in Indiana, southern Indiana, which was another even bigger Benedictine community. And there I really began to learn how to be a scholar. Uh, they had a great library, they had great teachers, uh, the teachers were scholars. And again, I learned to do this within the framework of what Jean Leclerc calls the love of learning and the desire for God so that my religious identity and my academic identity went hand in hand. Uh, so I, I'm forever grateful for the fact that I spent 15 years of my life within the context of a religious community, which nurtured in me um, a way of being a scholar that was also, at least in my intention, 
to be um, honoring God. So when I finished at St. Meinrad, I went back to my own monastery, but then discovered that over the interim of years, I um, was not as settled in that monastic vocation. And portentously, I met um, a, a woman who would later become my wife, Joy. And uh, she was a divorced woman, 10 years older than me, who already had six children. Oh, my goodness. So when I, so she took a class with me, and we became fast friends. And then um, in 1971, I was sent to Yale University to begin doctoral work in New Testament studies. And um, so from the very beginning of my work, my doctoral work at Yale, um, I was struggling with my monastic identity, the fact that I had fallen in love with this woman, the fact that she was a leader in the Catholic charismatic movement. I was a monk. What a mess. Um, and so over a four-year period, we had to try to figure out how to move forward in a way that, even though it hurt others, we tried to respond to what God was showing us. And we, I left the monastery we married, we had another child, so I had seven children in hand, uh, while I was doing my doctoral work. What fun. And so, so I uh, did my doctoral work at Yale, which was then uh, one of the two leading doctoral programs in New Testament studies. This was in the uh, 70s. And then in 1976, um, after... Uh, acquiring uh, a, a teaching job at, uh, at uh, Georgetown University in Washington, uh, and then having it taken away from me because of my ecclesiastical status, um, Yale said, well, we wanted to, you to stay here all along anyhow. And so my first job then was at uh, Yale Divinity School at Yale University. My guest... <clears throat> is Luke Timothy Johnson. We're talking about his book, The Mind in Another Place. Luke, before the break here, we've got a few minutes. Uh, you made a statement a minute ago, and I want you to follow up on it. You, you said, love of learning. H how does one uh, capture that? How do, you, how do you develop a love of learning? And what's a love of learning mean? I think that people who become the kind of person I became, um, have a lot of curiosity. And it's not just curiosity about this or that shiny thing. You know, it's not a matter of Wikipedia or uh, uh, Facebook or Twitter or something, being curious in, in a kind of a gossipy sense. It's really wanting to find out uh, everything that one can about some subject to go not only broad but deep. Um, and that requires time and energy and discipline. Um, and I think that folks uh, that are, are kind of built the way I am, there's always, I can, there's hardly a moment when I'm not reading. It's like my mind wants to be fed, just like my body wants to be fed. And I don't, I, I don't know whether that's genetic, whether it's a trait that's developed through uh, 
home and family. Certainly, in my case, my mother read to us. We read poetry. We read novels from from the earliest age. And so there is a kind of an itch that needs to be scratched, a kind of a hunger that needs to be fed. And so the if so, for me, that love of learning went hand in hand for the desire for God. And the two things, of course, then meant that the kind of scholar I was, was a theologian. My guest, <clears throat> and he's in Atlanta, heading for Denver, Luke Timothy Johnson, the mind in another place. Uh, when we come back, uh, I'm going to have Luke... Uh, talk about his time in becoming a scholar first uh, at uh, 10 years at IU Indiana and then nine years at Emory University and on beyond that uh, scholarship and academic retirement. And then uh, we, we get a scholar's view of virtues, intellectual virtues and moral virtues. Stay with us. We've got a lot ahead. And I do want to remind you folks that we're Still working hard, trying to bring Major League Baseball to Orlando. And you can be a big help. Uh, go up to the website, orlandodreamers.com, orlandodreamers.com, and, and just check in. Just say, yeah, great idea. Orlando is ready to become a Major League Baseball city. I'd like to be part of this. I'd have a interest in season tickets if this all works out. But we need to hear from you and show Major League Baseball that there's an enormous amount of interest down here. OrlandoDreamers.com. Well, when we get back here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour, we'll continue our chat with Luke Timothy Johnson, Professor Emeritus at uh, Emory University. Uh, oh, folks, it's the new AM 990. You knew that. And FM 101.5, the word in Orlando. Stay there all day long. We'll be back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Luke Timothy Johnson is with us. His book, The Mind in Another Place. Luke, tell us about your time at Indiana and then at Emory University for a long time. And then scholarship and academic retirement. I want to hear about this. Well, yeah, I started out teaching at a, a Protestant seminary at Yale Divinity School, but it was a term appointment, which meant no possibility of tenure. So from the beginning, I was on the lookout for another job, and I did not get a job at Emory. I did not get a job at Vanderbilt. And then, lo and behold, I got a job at a state university where I had received my master's degree. Mm. And this was a great gift to me. So for 10 years, I was in southern Indiana at the, in the beautiful town of Bloomington and the gorgeous university that was IU during the heyday of the great Bobby Knight, <laughs> uh, who was, who was at, by the way, the best teacher at IU, hands down, um, and um, really began to discover being a scholar not inside a Christian seminary, but in a department of religious studies in a state university where religion was taught descriptively rather than, you know, in terms of within a tradition. So, for example, I taught a course in uh, Introduction to Religions in the West, 
Judaism, Christianity, and Islam. And this was very good for me because it developed within me a kind of a comparative uh, sense of seeing Christianity not only from the inside, but also from the outside. So at Indiana, I grew used to having huge classes, undergraduate classes, classes of 200 people, you know, in, in the big introduction class, and a very lively uh, department of people representing different religious traditions, Judaism, Islam, Chinese religions, um, people who were believers, people who weren't believers, and it was very good for me intellectually because it sharpened my thinking. It made me understand that I couldn't presuppose shared outlooks. I had, if I was going to talk to my colleagues, if I was going to talk to my students, I had to be able to speak a language that they could understand. So that was a terrific experience for me. Um, but teaching undergraduates at IU uh, meant that you basically taught the same courses over and over again, because that's the nature of a big university. So I was offered in 1992 uh, a chair in at Emory University, the Woodruff Chair in New Testament and Christian Origins. And uh, this would return my wife to the South, where she could flourish, and it would return me also to the South, which I loved. And although Emory was not as good a university as I used, um, my position was a lot better. Um, I had a research fund. I had a better salary. I had better benefits. So I was very happy. And I spent the next 24 years at Emory. And this is the part of the book that people may not be able to get into very easily because I go into considerable detail about what's actually involved in an academic's life. And, you know, it's not just a matter of teaching a couple of hours a week. It's a matter of, for me at least, constant around-the-clock labor because of all the institutional, pedagogical, and scholarly requirements that always needed to be met. So um, a great deal, I was brought in at the age of 48 um, as one of five Woodrow professors at the university. It was made clear to me that I was to be an agent of change. So I had to do an awful lot of institutional work, reshaping curricula, uh, working with others to establish standards, ways of proceeding, and to bring Emory's program uh, to a level of excellence. Fortunately, I had a wonderful colleague, Carl Holliday, to whom this book is dedicated, and he and I together uh, managed over the course of those 24 years to make Emory University's doctoral program in uh, New Testament studies one of the two or three best in the country. Uh, producing distinguished dissertations that were published and placing our graduates in very fine academic positions. So it was a heck of a lot of work. Um, but when I retired, I was ready for retirement. I was 72. I was worn out. 
I needed five uh, skeletal surgeries within the next six years uh, because I basically had just run myself down. Luke, I need to interrupt here for a minute because I don't want to miss this. At the end of the book, intellectual virtues and moral virtues. Why is it important for you to write that? What's that mean? Well, what the word virtue here means excellence. So what are the marks of an excellent scholar? And so some of these marks are truly intellectual. Um, curiosity, respect for evidence, discipline, wide reading, so forth. And then the moral virtues are, are dispositions that go together with that. And the one that I list as most important is courage. So many people mm. simply parrot what other people say. And, and inter- intellectual courage is required for excellence in scholarship because you have to trust what your eyes see trust your ability to communicate that to others, and then stand up for it in public when it's challenged. So uh, I, this part of the book I wrote especially for, for would-be scholars, people who might want to enter this way of having the mind in another place. My guest, <clears throat> and it's been interesting to chat with Luke Timothy Johnson, and I guess the question is about your epilogue. It's called Looking Back and Forward. Uh, explain that. Well, you know, at the age of 78, it's appropriate to look back. And uh, what I realize is that virtually everything that I wrote and everything I worked for will quickly pass away. This is the nature of things. Um, I'll be very, very fortunate if somebody... Uh, 10 years from now, still has any notion of anything that I ever said or anything that I ever did. That would be extremely fortunate. For all of us, the water just closes over our head. So, (laughs) therefore, no matter how popular, no matter how powerful, whatever you are. um, So, I say that I'm very glad that I like doing what I did. And I didn't waste any time, and I got... I, I, I contributed to the world as best I could. Looking forward, I have some questions about, especially the academy, especially the university, how far down the road of political correctness is it really going to go? Um, it's already gone pretty far, and I worry about genuine scholarship, genuine uh interest and commitment to knowledge about the world is displaced by identity politics and everything that goes with that. So um, I'm not incredibly sanguine about the future, which is why I felt it important to write at least the story of the past leading up to the present moment. Well, what's next for you, Luke? I'm going to uh, write another book, Mm. um, and if the publisher wants it, on the nature of discipleship and the disputed character of discipleship among Christians in this country. I still am in communication with former doctoral students, and um, 
I'm not the kind of guy who's going to go fishing. So uh, I, I hope that I will find useful things to which to turn my mind. Well, folks, our guest has been Luke Timothy Johnson, the author of The Mind in Another Place, My Life as a Scholar. We've got a wrap-up. But first, we've got these messages here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. It's the new AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word in Orlando. We'll be right back. More of the Pat Williams Hour in just a moment. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. You're listening to the Pat Williams Power Hour. AM 990 and FM 101.5. The Word. Now, here's Pat. Folks, uh, thanks so much for joining us here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. Uh, In that first segment, Robert Morgan in Nashville. Oh, what a job he did talking about his book, The 50 Final Events in World History, The Bible's Last Words on Earth's Final Days. And then we went from Nashville to Atlanta and hooked up with Luke Timothy Johnson uh, talking about his book, The Mind in Another Place, My Life as a Scholar. And again, just a reminder, uh, my latest book is out. wrote it with my friend Mark Atterbury. It is called Every Day is Game Day. It's uh, 365 days of devotions. And every devotion, every story, every uh, uh, day, we have a sports story to, to lead off that devotion. And then it leads to the, the devotional part. I think you'll enjoy it. Every Day is Game Day. Have a wonderful week ahead. We'll catch up with you next weekend here on the Pat Williams Saturday Power Hour. And again, stay tuned all day long to the new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word in Orlando. Have a great week ahead. We'll see you next week. Thank you for joining us for this week's edition of the Pat Williams Power Hour. Join us again next week at this time where faith comes by hearing. The new AM 990 and FM 101.5, The Word. Three-star general, Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com. <laughs> 